0: I would like to read case 45 from the Blue Cliff Record. A monk asked Joshua, Myriad things return to one. Where does the one return? Joshua said, When I was in Say province, I made a cloth shirt. It weighed seven pounds. So um, we've come across Joshua before in Chinese. It's Chao Chao, very famous teacher. And um, so the myriad things return to the one. So where does the one return to? And he talks about um, putting on a cloth uh, shirt and. Um, so what's this kind about, about? It's trying to show. Um, and um, so I'll talk about it in reference to stages of practice. And when I speak of stages of practice, um, I'm talking about three stages of practice in this particular case. And they're not necessarily linear. I like to think them. I like to think of them as kind of uh, circular. That like we go one through one and. To another, and then the other, and then maybe come back again to the first one, and so on. So, we're kind of like working them on them all at the same time, in a way. But the um, but the first the first stage of Zen practice is is about realizing oneness, and uh, and uh, so in this particular uh, koan, you know, he is talking about the source of everything, one. The myriad of things return to one, they return to the source. And uh, this is the aspect of practice that we talk about as being the absolute. It's the interconnectedness, the emptiness uh, of the universe. There's no substantial entity within the universe. Um, Everything is interconnected, everything is impermanent. And in Zen practice, we take up the um, practice of oneness um, and, and there are different ways, but primarily two ways. In the, uh, in the Rinzai tradition, they take up a koan, and the first koan is usually Mu, or, or it can be sometimes just a simple word, one, where the, uh, our attention uh, comes back down to that one word all the time, with one syllable, either Mu... All one, and uh, we focus all our attention on that one word, and we just keep coming back to it all the time. Uh, in our practice, we focus more on returning to this moment, and uh, so we practice an open awareness of coming back to our whatever we are experiencing in this moment. Uh, and when we do anxiety, it's going to be your body sensations and all the various other senses, and your awareness of what's going on in your mind. So in our practice, uh, what we're doing is we're returning again and again and again, back to this moment, this moment. So, when we're returning to the body sensations, That's the direct experience of oneness or non-separation. There's a sense in which this realization of oneness or boundlessness is a sense in which it's a form of undifferentiated immediacy. So if you think of the myriad things as being differentiation. So the oneness is undifferentiation. So we're hearing sounds, just the sound. We're not so concerned about the making the distinctions between the particular sounds. We're just becoming intimate with sounds. With our body sensations, we're just becoming intimate with our body sensations. It's the awareness of our direct experience in which we continuously do this practice of non-separation. In oneness there is no us and them. There is no I and you. It's just this. Everything returns to this. In experiencing this moment directly, there's no good or bad. There's no evaluation. It's prior to evaluation. It's just experiencing we apply the same practice to our thoughts, because that's where our judgment evaluation originates. So if we find ourselves evaluating, in other words, getting caught in our thought stream, then we simply apply the practice of labeling, if that works for you, just simply noting thinking, or thinking this is good, or thinking this is bad. So. We label it and return to the direct experience again. This is the basic practice of returning to oneness. Sometimes there may be pleasant experiences which arise. Sometimes there may be delightful opening experiences or a sense of boundlessness, lightness. But the purpose of the practice is not about trying to generate any particular special states. Um, one of the traps of this kind of practice is, uh, which is talked about in Zen is becoming infatuated with oneness and becoming attached to it in some way. That's the first stage of practice, and it's a practice that we never stop doing. The second stage of practice is when we are actually um, what I've been talking about as being relational, Zen. So when we, when we move it off our cushions into our everyday life and what we're wanting to do is, whatever realization of oneness we've had in our practice, we want to find a way of responding to the world from that place of oneness. I'm just going to quote about the second stage of practice. I'm just going to quote um, from Barry's book, um, Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. We move, we move out of the first phase when we start to be less preoccupied with our own condition, and into an awareness of how our actions and reactions affect those around us. We begin to allow practice to go against the grain of our secret practice rather than always to collude with it. We learn to focus not so much on how life is treating us, but on how we respond to life. When, when Barry talks about secret practice, he means the various ways our self-centered preoccupations sneak into our practice. Um, in other words, you know, uh, how we can use practice to sort of strengthen our ego or our sense of invulnerability or our specialness rather than moving through this first stage into how we express that uh, interdependence uh, in the world. So we are, we are attentive to the world around us and take responsibility for it. We start to feel what it means to let ourselves be open to the world, rather than always trying to impose our desires onto the world. So in a sense, in the first stage of practice, the oneness practice, it's also often the metaphors are used about opening the heart-mind, or opening the heart through the practice of oneness. And we can, we do that and we have that experience in varying degrees. If one sits for a long time in a session, you, 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 you will have that sense of expansiveness, of a, a sense of your heart that's beginning to open like a flower. So then in the next stage of practice, the challenge then is how do we bring that openness? How do we bring that open heart and maintain it in the world without closing back down again? So we start to feel what it means to let ourselves be open to the world rather than always trying to impose our desires onto the world. We realise practice is not simply something that takes place in our cushions, but is manifested in every moment of our lives. How the zendo is run, how newcomers are treated, how we interact with each other outside the zendo, all those mundane things that in the first stage we tended to ignore or treat as a means to an end now becomes central to our conception of practice. We may even begin to speculate that any progress we think we've made is better measured by what our our partner thinks of our behaviour at home than whatever special effects we've managed to generate sitting on our cushion." And um, in in terms of the second stage of practice, um, one of the uh, the traps that Barry talks about is um, Becoming overly self-consciousness, I guess, about our, how compassionate we are. Um, you know, sort of like becoming self-conscious about being a good person or a compassionate person can also bring a certain egotistic danger into the practice as well. You know, so we need to remind ourselves that even in this second stage of practice, it's about forgetting the self and responding from that open place. Finally, Barry, in this, he talks about a third stage of practice where we're taking beyond the self-centered self in a kind of uh, involuntary way. And there's a certain point in practice maybe that we reach where it becomes almost involuntary in the sense of uh, the deep acceptance of life as it is, being our only teacher, becomes uh, the that sort of that process almost becomes hard to retreat from. That sense of opening um, is uh, you can't really step back from anymore. But again, the precaution is no transformation is ever total. And old patterns can continuously reassert themselves in our lives. So again, we, we go back to the third stage and start working there, to the third stage, and then to the third stage. And so this sense of continuously working through these cycles of practice, never-ending circle. Hopefully a never-ending circle of uh, beneficence, one that benefits both ourselves and others. And um, so over the past few weeks, we've been talking about how the precepts can then be understood as forms of compassionate witnessing. And we've talked about um, the uh, how this, the, in terms of witnessing, we have this continuum of awareness, and, and on the other dimension, a, a form of empowerment or disempowerment. Another way of thinking about that is... Um, In stage one of our practice, we're cultivating being awareness. We're cultivating that ability to be aware moment by moment and then realizing when we've lost that awareness and then waking up again, coming, returning to our practice. Over and over and over again we're practicing being awareness of this moment. And we could think of maybe the stage two of practice as applying the precepts and the so if we, we think of stage one as being awareness, yeah? we could think of stage two as being compassion. Uh, in other words, it's, um, we're not just cultivating awareness for the sake of cultivating awareness, but we're also cultivating awareness and non-separation so that we can respond from that place, that we can respond from that openness to ourselves and the world. And in many ways, that's what the, the compassionate witnessing is about. It's about how we, uh, we uh, both uh, maintain our awareness in the world, and we respond compassionately in the world. Some of the conditions for that compassionate witnessing, which uh, not just Buddhism but other religions talk about, are the importance of realizing our common humanity. And um, we realize our common humanity from that place of oneness. We see, not, ju- not just theoretically, but we see through our practice. We see through the illusion of a separate self. We see our, the faces of the others that we meet, our own face or the face of our father or mother or brother or daughter. That's humanization. Unfortunately, in the world, the enemy of this common humanity is dehumanization. And um, in in dehumanization, people respond to others not as a fellow human being, but as an other, and there are various ways in which others are demonized. And you'd all be aware of that from the way in which these current uh, acts of violence that we witness on the TV news, how people, how various politicians are able to witness that. Some of them don't witness it very compassionately. Uh, there's a movie I saw recently, which I recommend by a director called Ken Loach, who's a British director who's specialised in the field of, I guess, kind of um, uh, reality, kind of uh, uh, bringing bringing um, his awareness and compassion into the what we would refer to as ordinary folk or working class citizens, and. Um, He recently made a movie called I, Daniel Blake. Very pertinent movie about today's society in which policy and institutions that we set up that are supposedly there to care for vulnerable people, to care for aged people, to care for ill people, to care for mentally unwell people, to care for unemployed people how these institutions uh, are set up that actually block the ability of people to care for each other uh, because of the procedures that are put in place which are very dehumanizing. And this particular movie really illustrates that really well where the main character uh, who's been a carpenter all his life is being diagnosed with a heart condition and has been advised by his uh, GP and other uh, uh, to, to that he, he needs to stay off work for a while. Unfortunately, he gets entangled <coughs> with the, uh, the British equivalent or the English equivalent of our Centrelink and uh, goes on this uh, horrific journey of dehumanization uh, where he's reduced to a number where the people interviewing him do not respond to him as a human being and um, and, um, and any attempt that he makes to try and actually talk to a human being is brushed off and not acknowledged and uh, is continually told you'll have to wait until the decision maker makes a decision um, until the end he takes he does an act of protest which is quite moving and i won't tell you the end of the movie because the end of the movie is very moving too Because the movie also illustrates how he connects with a a young um, uh, soul mother of two children. And how his compassion towards her illustrates the other way of compassionate witnessing, as opposed to the dehumanization that he himself experiences. So there are lots of conditions that we we need to be compassionate witnesses. Uh, Awareness, kindness, patience. Uh, we also need to assess our safety as to what the best sort of response is. And and uh, various interactional practices such as non-violence, um, forgiveness, various forms of reconciliation and restorative justice. Were <clears throat> this is uh, very important when we um, think of witnessing uh, and focus, you can, can see the precepts, the precepts themselves can be the focus, how we focus in you know, our compassionate witnessing, the, the precepts like these beacons, these lights which point to the areas within ourselves or in the world which we can witness. And you, know, you can just focus on one precept if you like for a few weeks and just notice that and how you witness that within yourself and others and then move on to another one. One of the hardest things in our lives to witness is when we are actually have been injured by um, someone else. So in other words, when we're witnessing our own injury, um, something that's either occurred in the past or in the present. And there is a beautiful um, um, one of the chants that we do in Zen Buddhism, which when I get round to getting a chant book We will be reciting this one. I just want to read it out to you. This one's called "The Body's Atlas Vow. It goes like this. When I, a student of the way, look at the real form of the universe, all is the never-failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of the awakened life. In any event, in any moment, and in any place, None can be other than the marvellous revelation of its glorious life. So this is the undifferentiated oneness the, uh, that we were talking about earlier, the immediacy of this moment. It's often used, the metaphor of life is often used. This realisation um, made our ancestors and teachers extend tender care with respectful hearts even to such beings as birds and beasts. This realization teaches us that our daily food, drink, clothes and protections of life are the warm flesh and blood and the merciful incarnation of the Awakened One. Who can be ungrateful or not respectful even to senseless things not to speak of human beings. Even though they may be fools, be warm and compassionate towards them. If by any chance they should turn against us, become a sworn enemy, and abuse and persecute us, we should sincerely bow down with humble language in the reverent understanding that they are the merciful messengers of the awakened one who uses devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies, produced and accumulated upon ourselves by our own egoistic delusion and attachment through countless cycles of space and time. So can we maintain our realization of oneness? Can we maintain that never-failing manifestation of the mysterious truth in every moment when someone criticizes us, or when someone tells us to fuck off. (coughs) Can we, on each moment's flash of our thought, and he finishes by saying, then, on each moment's flash of our thought, there will grow a lotus flower, and on each lotus flower will be revealed perfection, unceasingly manifest as our life, just as it is. Right here and now. May we extend this mind to all beings, so that we and the world together may attain maturity in the wisdom of the awakened life. So, Joko wouldn't say like um, it's not on un- un- It's not so much that we want to become. I think it's wrong to try and use practice to become impervious to what people might say about us. You know, if someone disparages us or says a mean word towards us, it's not about trying to become impervious to that. If we have an open heart, we're going to be vulnerable and we're going to experience that hurt. Um, But the challenge in the present moment of witnessing ourselves with compassion is can we experience the pain of that hurt without turning the other into another, without turning the other into some demon that we can blame uh, for our hurt. Can we simply experience the hurt as pain without applying any evaluation to it? And then how do we respond? How do we respond compassionately to that person who abuses us? The second sort of... um, practice to take up in regards to this. And it probably comes closest to the, this kind of practice is probably around preset number nine, which is witnessing the reality of ill will and the pain of divisiveness in myself and in the world. I take up the way of letting go of anger. So it's that sense of how can we respond from a place of compassion, rather than from a place of anger. And, It's the same when we are experiencing past hurts, past injuries. And that falls in the domain of forgiveness. So becoming aware of any anger and resentments that we're still holding on to from injuries that have occurred in the past. This is called the transformation of inner violence in the sense in which if we're caught in hate or Hatred, various forms of hatred, anger, resentment. And if we're carrying that around, then uh, we're being violent or toxic within ourselves. This can have deleterious effects, of course, not just on our minds, but on our bodies as well. Um, I'm not saying that um, people, people can develop cancer who are beautiful, loving, loving, beings as well. Cancer sometimes uh, is not just about, um, just it just, just has is indiscriminate often in, in who may come down with cancer. But I think there are some, um, when we carry around a sense of violence within ourselves in the form of self-hate or hate for others or resentment, it must have some deleterious effect on our, on, our, on our physical systems I think as well. And um, so, again, it's the compassion moving both ways, towards ourselves and being kind towards ourselves and also towards others. So um, so one of the challenges in our witnessing practice and what I'd like to challenge you to try and observe um, during this year in terms of the precept number nine is... Um, yeah. How, able, how, how difficult have you found it to be a compassionate witness, either in the present moment when someone is being uh, uh, disrespectful or um, critical or towards us? And, and secondly, um, just uh, witnessing if you're holding any uh, old uh, anger or resentments from the past in terms of people who have, may have hurt you, injured you from the past. See if you can bring this uh, practice into those, uh, those old injuries.